0: Let us pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks uh, for glimpses of you coming into our world in order that we might be saved. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would manifest yourself now in the reading and in the teaching of your word, that our hearts might be drawn close to you, and in the busyness of this season, uh, we might rest uh, in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to talk about the conversion of St. Paul We've taken a little bit of a break from St. Paul in general, Acts specifically, because last week we did talk about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And um, previous weeks we had some guests in the class uh, between Stephen uh, McCarthy. Yeah, Stephen McCarthy. And uh, and do you know, like, for the first two weeks, any printed publication here said Andrew McCarthy? Remember the guy from, like, uh, Sixteen Candles? Uh, And... um, just shows you where Spencer Leffel's mind is. But anyway, uh, we had him in the class, and uh, Paul sort of drops off the scene in Acts chapter 8 where Saul is ravaging the church, and now we pick it back up again. So what Luke has done is he shows us uh, all the amazing things that the Lord is doing in the midst uh, of the church, and uh, really setting us up to see that uh, even as intentional as Paul is, God's purposes can't be thwarted. There's nothing that even Saul can do, although we're going to see the lengths at which Paul goes to in order to really try to undermine uh, not just the work of the church, but the work of God himself. And so Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way which is what they used to call Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. The Word of the Lord. Amen. So I've been thinking a lot about the conversion of St. Paul, my own conversion. And for some reason, what keeps coming to mind, especially uh, this time of year and what we experienced uh, yesterday in the Georgia Dome, when I think of the conversion, uh, the conversion of Paul, I, um, I, I think of Paul Feinbaum. And, um, and uh, there's something, uh, I think that the, the Apostle Paul may have been a little bit like him, um, uh, but without a sense of humor. Um, and so... Um, I just I had to figure out how to fit this in somewhere. <laughs> it's just it was amazing uh, there yesterday that uh, they were handing out all these things and uh, there were very few left of Paul Feinbaum, but there was like a gigantic stack of Tim Tebow. <laughs>
1: I'm
0: not sure, not sure what that means. Uh, I, I actually know I have memories of what was that? Oh, eight? 08? Yeah, let's not talk. Anyway, so uh, but St. Paul uh, not quite sainted, Paul, at this point, uh, is is headed up to Damascus, and he's gone to the high priest in Jerusalem and asked uh, for letters to go to the synagogue. Now, um, this seems pretty routine, but what's happening here is really dastardly. It's an awful thing that Paul is doing, but what, because what he's doing is he's getting a letter of introduction to the synagogue that says, my name is Paul, I'm operating on behalf of the high priest. And what I want is for you to point out any Christians in your synagogue community so that I can tie them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. So what Paul is doing is he's going to Damascus, which is not near, it's modern-day Syria, right? Uh, And so he's leaving the political jurisdiction and the religious jurisdiction, really, of Jerusalem. He's crossing boundaries, and he's going to Damascus, kidnapping Christians, From their homes, even. Tell me who the Christians are. I'm going to go in. I'm going to bring the men and women, which means it may be a case in which mom and dad are taken away, but the children stay behind. And this is his activity in Jerusalem. He kidnaps Christians, ties them up, and brings them back to Jerusalem so they can stand trial and what? Die. Like Stephen. Um, It's just such a brutal, uh, terrible thing. And... um, and done with great calculation. Uh, it's not a whim. This is, Paul has taken this as, uh, as his MO. This is his whole uh, life's work right now has come to the point where he feels that the greatest calling on his life from God is to kidnap Christians and bring them back in order that they might be killed. Not giving any thought to breaking up families. And so, uh, compassion doesn't even enter in into the equation here. He's just calculated and cold-blooded. And the religious institutions there in Jerusalem are, um, are in cahoots with him. Uh, worse yet, the way that they have to go about this is curious because they're still under Roman authority, remember? And so they have to find a way in order to get around the whole idea of Roman authorities because there's only one... Uh, who was able to, um, uh, the Roman governor there, and at the time is Pontius Pilate, right? You remember? Uh, Pilate is the governor, and so he's the only one who has the authority to execute. Uh, But clearly, they're finding some way around it. We don't, uh, you know, if you got on mugshots.com when this happened, I don't think that you would see the people arrested for Stephen. Um, And really, so long as allegiance is being paid to Rome, and their act is not an act of rebellion. Uh, in fact, the Roman authorities are very glad for them to go on their merry way so long as they have some allegiance uh, to, uh, to the empire. And so there's no one uh, stopping Paul. There's no Roman guard saying, where are you going? Uh, there's no one, uh, as they come back into Jerusalem, uh, people who are bound hand and foot saying, hey, what are you doing? Uh, nothing, nothing, uh, just a drill. Uh, nothing like that happening, but uh, this terrible, dastardly act, and uh, the most unlikely of things happens. It's on his way to kidnap Christians in order that they might be murdered that God intervenes in Paul's life. Now, if there was anybody who walked the face of the earth at this time who deserved God's intervention less, it would be Saint Paul. Right? It, it would be it would be Saint Paul. And next week we're going to talk about can God. Can God actually change us? Can we be different? Because when Paul undergoes this conversion experience, God speaks to Ananias. And what is Ananias' response? What? <laughs> you want him to come here? And I, I can't believe that God would intervene in his life and change his heart. Uh, one of the things that I think is remarkable about Paul is in his opposition to Christianity. He's actually a very religious individual. In fact, uh, he gives his own testimony Uh, elsewhere. He is the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's the guy that's got it all together. He could teach Sunday school class. He could lead a Bible study. He uh, sat uh, at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the rabbi that he learned under. He's a Greek-speaking Jew, uh, so he's got uh, some culture as well. Uh, He's He's the poster child. He is what everybody hopes that their son grows up to be. Uh, Although, hopefully, there were some people in Jerusalem at the time that said, maybe this is a step too far. Uh, And yet, um, Paul uh, is just outright refusing and refuting Christianity. We actually never get to the reason why Paul is so against Christianity. Christianity, other than uh, he had totally closed off his heart and mind to God, as if what he was, there's the irony, is that what he thought he was doing is that he was being obedient to the Lord, but in fact he was being the complete opposite. Now, um, one of the things that that we are experiencing in the West, depending on who you ask, is is um, right now there's a debate uh, between two schools of thought, and one of them is sort of Charles Taylor's school of thought, which is that the West is becoming more and more secular. And then Peter Berger responds, no, it's not. It's becoming more and more, the world is actually as a whole becoming more religious. And where secularism is happening, uh, it's happening. There, but not necessarily anywhere else. And what I see in Paul, what I see in a lot of secularism, is that it's not anti-religion, but is in and of itself a religion. Uh, it's it's a, it's a code. It's uh, a framework. It's a pattern for how one uh, lives uh, their their lives and and their existence. And yet, what I will say in the West, but actually more true of monotheistic faiths, are that. Most people reject God. The only place where we have this issue of atheism are places where Abrahamic faiths are prevalent. It's the only place. So you would be very hard pressed to go to India or somewhere in the east and find a Hindu or a Buddhist who was an atheist. Now, they may not believe everything, but if you ask, you know, is there a a divine being? Is there some sort of force in the world that got? Yes. It would be almost impossible not to find someone who believed that. And yet, in the West, where the monotheistic faiths are are prevalent, uh, you find a lot of people who are over and against Christianity especially, but maybe any monotheistic faith, and the reason for that has everything to do with, I think, uh, has everything to do with one's independence and one being able to sort things out for themselves and to be the captain of their destiny. Uh, because in Christianity, in Judaism, and in Islam, uh, Christianity being, if you took those three, Christianity being really one, one side of that spectrum, which says, um, God is completely sovereign, uh, we make a mess of things, We've got issues, and so God comes into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. He rescues us from even ourselves, uh, and now if we're to have a relationship with God, it is 100% him, and all we do is surrender. We give up. Right? On the other side of that would be something like Islam, uh, which says uh, God is in complete control, but at the same time, he sees when you are sleeping, he knows when you are awake. So you, right, you know, that was your cue. You were supposed to start singing. Um, uh, but, but, you, uh, but you actually do have something to do with it. And your relationship with God is contingent upon your acts and your behavior in your own inherent righteousness. Where Christianity says, no, 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 no. Uh, any righteousness that we have is not inherent. It's been given to us. It's Jesus' righteousness, to use a big word, imputed, given to us as, as a gift and so now we share in the righteousness of God, even though we know that we're a mess, and yet that's how God sees us, and we're we are children of God, and there's security in that. You can be, you can be safe in that. You you know that it's true. Uh, where with with Islam, it's sort of we'll see. Now in Eastern religions, uh, you have the issue of. Uh, if good things are happening to you, it's because you've been very good. If bad things are happening to you, it's because you've been very bad. And so if anything's going wrong, it's your fault. Don't blame God. Uh, it's, it's your problem. And so that gets in the whole idea of why reincarn- reincarnation and, and, things, uh, and things like that. Uh, so you actually are hard pressed to find any atheist in the East uh, because ultimately your faith has to be placed a whole lot more in yourself than, than any uh, higher higher being. You now you're like, wh- what does that have to do with anything? Well, I want to look at objections to Christianity and why people in the West uh, really are um, have such a hard time with it. And uh, a lot of times when I ask people, well what do you think is that why, why would someone like Paul, uh, who comes from a monotheistic faith, or at least has been in that culture. Like, you know, how could somebody from Alabama uh, be against Christianity? Now, inevitably, what happens, and I, I'm guilty of this too, is I begin to blurt out things that come to mind, uh, you know, like, uh, well, there are lots of things I could blurt out, but I won't. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with, actually, have I experienced that firsthand? Or is that what the media is telling me? But what are my friends, my family, and my neighbors saying? What are they saying when they say, I'm struggling with Christianity because of this? And if there's one thing about living in Alabama is that you're struggling with Christianity, right? It's not, I mean, everybody, uh, what I found is that I'm, I'm very hard-pressed to find anyone who is militantly against Christianity. What I find a lot of are people who are like, I'm not sure why I can't be a Christian, Right, But here are my struggles. So I want to ask you, what, what are some of the things that you hear from your friends, family, and neighbors uh, when it comes to faith? Now, I don't think any of your friends, families, and neighbors are like going to Damascus to get Christians uh, and, and bring them back. But still, nonetheless, they're thinking, wait a minute. Man, y'all have faithful families. <laughs> Or maybe you. you. Just say it's your brother and use what you what your struggle <laughs> is. Now one of my, my dear friend's biggest concerns
1: is, is inherently unfair. Mm-hmm. And he just can't reconcile
0: that. What's unfair about it? What does he say is unfair?
1: That our own merit does to play into
0: it. Right. So he he actually, would or she, would like to be would like to be weighed according to merit. I want some credit for the good stuff uh, that, that, that I have, that I've done. Okay, um, let's unpack that. Yeah, that actually is not very far, far from St. Paul. St. Right, Paul spent a lot of time trying to build up merit in life and and saying, you know, look at me. And he was a Pharisee. And at one point in John's gospel, there's this wonderful transition where Jesus stops talking to the Pharisees, even though they ask him a question. He actually, for the first time ever, stops talking to them and talks to everybody else and says, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Listen to what they say, uh, but don't do what they do. And, um, That's a good word, uh, because on the one hand, uh, should we do really good things for people? Yes. Uh, But one of the things that Christianity does do is that it brings us to a place where we were actually to sit down and write out all of our good deeds and our bad deeds um, were found lacking. And so in our communion prayer, that's why Cranmer wrote uh, in the 16th century, uh, Lord, that you would accept this, uh, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses. I mean, growing and growing up, we're taught that. Like, we get merit awards. I think the funniest thing we don't do it here, but we used to give awards in the church I grew up in for perfect attendance for Sunday school, and it just struck me like they should give that to the parents, probably not the kids. Like, the kid is, you know, like that should be a parent award, not not a kid award. And they were always the worst kids. They're always very bad. Uh, and uh, uh, now, now they're in uh, now they're in motorcycle gangs. So. Um, so yeah, so uh, what Christianity does is it actually opens up, like Paul, Paul's a very good example of this, and he says, thank God I'm not weighed according to our merit. But like, that's, I mean, nobody likes to hear the message of, let's just talk about how bad you really are. And Christianity doesn't say you're as bad as you could possibly be, uh, but what Christianity says is that you're inherently self-interested, you're going to pick yourself over everybody else most of the time, and... Um, And life's just really hard. I mean, most of the world thinks that if um, there's a wonderful, oh gosh, what's his name? Dan, I've quoted him a bunch of times. He did a TED video, and uh, he did this TED video, and he says that uh, he's, he's from Israel, but he teaches social economics at Duke. And he wrote a book called Rationally Irrational and which is how he describes human beings. He said, most of the world believes that human beings, if given all the information concerning uh, a, a problem, if they have all of their information right, they'll choose the right way 100% of the time. And of course, what we know is what? We don't, right? Otherwise, uh, we'd be in a whole lot better shape, right? If we just had all the information. if if I mean, in fact, what we really see is that even confronted with all of the information and all of the pros and cons, for some reason, we still do the wrong thing. And even in the littlest of ways, uh, uh, one of the things that happens, uh, well, not in my relationship, but I see this, is with a spouse where you you walk into the house at night and you can feel the tension. You can feel it in the air. You can feel the, the barometer dropping. And, uh, and as you walk in you know that you know like there's a child whimpering not crying but whimpering in the corner <laughs> and uh, there's food on the floor uh, there's a chalk outline somewhere and and you just and and you see your spouse who just has this look of one of uh, like very bad fear and rage coupled in one like a cor- like a deer and so with antlers and uh, and so you walk in and um, you know, like I need to be, co- I need to be compassionate and loving and non-judgmental in this situation. And as long as I don't say this, like, did you pick up the dry cleaning? Right. <laughs> uh, as long as I don't say this, the storm will actually pass over. One little thing. Just don't say it. And this, and what do you do? <laughs> right. Uh, you say it, and. Um, and, uh, and, and there, there you go. So, I mean, even confronted, even when you know, you know in your heart of hearts, like this is the right thing to do, you can't, you can't do it. And even though every human being uh, that has walked the face of the earth ought to know that, uh, their anthropology is still too high. They still think, but maybe I could. Maybe with just a little bit of effort, uh, I, I could be better. Uh, it's the whole idea of a New Year's resolution I mean, I, I resolved already, you know, this year, I was like, you know, uh, I'm going to knock down, and this is not hard, I'm going to knock down my usual intake of 10 pumpkin pies between Thanksgiving and New Year's. Uh, I'm allowed to have one more piece uh, before the end of the month, and um, I'm not going to make it. Uh, so, uh, but uh, even even the, the most simplest of things, where you... Uh, you you go out to lunch and you say I'm going to get half of my lunch packed away to the waiter and he's going to bring it and and I'm not going to have any dessert and before you know it you've eaten the entire plate of Alfredo and you have a piece of cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. right? And just to FYI, there was a great magazine several years ago that used to have this little column that said, uh, that would put something in it from a, a chain restaurant in America, and it would say, if you eat this dish, here's what you would have to do to work it off. And one piece of cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory, you ready? Ten miles of cross-country skiing.
1: <laughs>
0: That's I, I mean, it's, that's why, like, I don't know if you've actually looked under a table at the Cheesecake Factory. There's a defibrillator there under every table. And um, uh, so, I mean, in spite of the fact that you look at that and I see that, why is it that we still eat the cheesecake? Because we, we, can't, we can't help ourselves. So, what are some of the other things that people say? Um,
1: the thing I hear, and I actually struggle with this personally, is... Um, what about the friends or family members who are not religious? I don't want to say so intense that they're atheists, but they're just not religious. And the, the Christian belief that they are not with God. Right. I, I personally have the
0: hope, you know, I the
1: yeah. that that is not true. And I do remember when I was very young and I was at the Advent, I was in one of the first small groups, and on the to God was murder. And we were in this little small group with a the priest in, and, mm-hmm. uh, and we, you know, it just buffed us all. We said, Where is he right now? And this particular priest said, Well, I think that he is with God and Jesus. Because, even though he was a Christian, mm-hmm. and I know this is not necessarily the belief, but even though he was a Christian, that when to died, because of his heart, when he saw, you know, Christ on the cross, Jesus, whatever. Right. And I know that's not, but I guess what I'm saying is, so that's the problem that I and I hear a lot yeah.
0: have is what about the friends
1: and the relatives that have departed? Yeah. And, you know, because is it okay to have that hope, even though it's a thing, that
0: God might be <coughs> Right. What? Yeah, thank you for such a, a small question, Joe. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, let me say this. Uh, let me say this. Uh, I mean, one of the beliefs that Christianity has is that. Justice and mercy have have come together in Jesus Christ. That that God is 100% justice and he's 100% mercy. And so at the end of the day, uh, he's going to set all things to right. Now, what we're left with is, okay, what does that look like? Now, one of the things that I will not do is give you uh, a little lesson from Andrew's book of second opinion. Uh, I am not going to presuppose where anybody ends up in fact, um, uh, I think there's no sin in heaven. We do know that for a fact. So um, even if certain people are not there, uh, even if certain people are not there, uh, because there's no sin, they won't be missed. But at the same time, let's say that there is sin in heaven. I'd probably have a harder time with the people who are there than who's not there. Uh, I'd probably say, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't want to spend eternity with them. Um, <laughs> Uh, that and, and also in our own human hearts, I mean, none of us can be the arbiter of truth and righteousness because where do you draw the line? Like it would, uh, you know, the person who is willing to say Anwar Sadat, would they be willing to say someone really dastardly? I mean, you, you, in your mind, someone is coming, a name is coming up, whether it be somebody from history or somebody uh, you're related to. Uh, but uh, but somebody really, like somebody you would think, that's really, really shocking. Uh, or, you know, I, I remember when uh, that lady, gosh, what was her name? She was on Texas death row, committed a terrible multiple murder, murder with an ax. And Carla, Carla Faye Tuck, Tucker, is that right? Carla Faye Tucker. Uh, George W. Bush was uh, uh, the, the president of Texas uh, at the time. And um, uh, he, uh there was a lot of pressure from Christians to commute her sentence to life imprisonment because she had become a Christian on death row. And there was this whole big uh, debate over, um, uh, and what alarmed me most of so all, I didn't want to, I, I could care less about the politics of it, but what I was struck by were the number of people who were angry that she became a Christian. Uh, people who would say, oh, well, that's convenience. Isn't isn't that convenient for her to become a Christian on death row? Uh, And uh, I just thought, uh, heavens above, praise God for his mercy that he can reach through and get somebody on death row. And the other thing is people thinking like, well, I maybe deserve a relationship with Jesus a little bit more than her. Like God doesn't dwell on death row. In fact, that's what I'm preaching on Christmas Eve. What if God showed up now? Where would he be? Uh, Because I hear all kinds of crazy ideas about where people either say God doesn't belong on death row or God needs to go to death row because they need Jesus a little bit more than I do. Uh, And uh, so uh, God in his perfect mercy, all things are going to be set to rights. And the thing about hell, too, because that's what we're talking about. uh, The thing about hell, too, is that nobody goes to hell who doesn't want to go to hell. Um, uh, You know, for some reason, I think about that, that uh, a friend of mine was like, so let me get this right. Heaven is just one gigantic praise and worship service for Jesus? Yes. No thanks. <laughs> right? No thanks. Now, for those of you who struggle to get through church, and I'll be honest, sometimes I do too, and uh, not here, of course, but, uh, but there are times when you're just like, like, gosh, I, I'm, I'm exhausted or whatever it might be. It's not going to be. We only catch glimpses of it here on earth. Um, but what I would say is that uh, God is merciful and that he is going to sort that out, and I have to rest in that. I have to rest in that. But in the meantime, what that ought to do is for us to reach out. Not, I mean, and there's a difference between religiosity, being religious, and uh, and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul here is the picture of religiosity. Like, if he was being judged by his heart, like his intentions. Uh, which are, he has good intentions, Uh, he'd get in, but what we find is that he is going down a bad, bad road. He thinks he's going down God's road, but it turns out he's going uh, the other way, and when he's on the road to Damascus, uh, the Bible says that something like scales fell from his eyes, Right? that uh, that those who walk in darkness, uh, we pray that they have seen a great light, but what it requires for us to turn to Jesus is for God to take the first move and to remove the blinders from our eyes so that we can actually see something as it is. Like, when you become a Christian, you're actually able to view the world as it is. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes, you don't see things or perceive things wrongly, uh, but for the first time, you ought to, at the very least, be able to see who you are for yourself, and you ought to be able to see who God is in 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 honesty and in truth. And, uh, and so a lot of times, too, when I hear people talk about either judgment or the Bible or Jesus or God, they'll say something, and I'll ask, well, where is that in the Bible? Well, I don't know, but that's just, and it's, you know, something crazy where I'm just like, you know, that's, that's not true, um, uh, but, but they have uh, some perceptions about things, uh, but they're not actually able to see a thing uh, for what it is. In fact, I think I might have said this, I went to a dinner a couple weeks ago that was expressly for the purpose of talking about what happens when you die. that took some guts for the host to say, I'm just, and they, and it was like uh, the UN of religiosity. I was sort of the representative for Christianity, and then there was like a representative for atheism. uh, There was a representative for what, you know, that, and we all kind of went around the table and talked about things. And there were some other Christians there, and by the end of the night, do you know who was the maddest at me? The Christians. (laughs) Uh, The Christians, because one of them kept saying, well, here's, uh, God dials you up, but you got to pick up the phone. But you've got to pick up the phone. I'm like, really? Because he's been calling up St. Paul nonstop his whole life. And St. Paul is just sort of like, you know, uh, I had my grandmother. The phone would ring and ring, and she just, I thought, how can you not hear that? And she's just like, I just don't want to answer it. Just don't, I just don't want to answer it. And so uh, Paul is not hearing it, and he's not able to pick it up. Uh, what happens is that God doesn't dial you up. God meets you on the road to Damascus. And it may not be as dramatic as this, but he says your name and he calls you into fellowship with him. He he intervenes. Even those of us who have grown up in the church and think, well, there's not a point in my life where I've never been apart from Jesus, Uh, even then, there's probably some point in our lives that we can point to where we at least appropriated faith for ourselves or that there was some sort of transition point uh, or something like that where Jesus became very personal to us and we thought, I have a relationship with the living God. Jim. Jim
1: sometimes I feel like we've become victims of our kindness and political correctness that it schools uh, you know
0: Christmas has been kind of vanished and I see Christmas cards and it's just happy holidays instead of Christmas and these seems like we could reach some point where we're open-minded and embracing other people but still preserve Christmas right yeah that goes back and forth I mean I I don't um I don't know you know I mean I what I think is so funny is that we're all saying happy holidays, but we wouldn't be able to say that without Christmas. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so it's like we're all saying Merry Christmas, but nobody's saying Merry Christmas. And uh, so I don't, you know, and it, it's ebb and flow. Like I've noticed recently, like it, it, from year to year, and I think we're actually moving much, much closer to this. It used to be happy holidays, and if you say anything else, we're gonna, we're gonna kill you. Uh, um, but then, but now what I see a lot more of, I guess it's, you know, it's the difference between, you know, is America a patchwork quilt or is it a melting pot? I think we're getting more and more away from the melting pot and more toward the the, the patchwork quilt. So I see a lot more now of Happy Hanukkah, uh, Happy Kwanzaa, Merry Christmas, Happy Festivus, uh, whatever, whatever it might, whatever it might be. Uh, and, but, but Christmas seems to be the real sticking point because I was very angry uh, my kids watch Sophia the First on uh, uh, the Antichrist Network Disney, just kidding um, <laughs> but I thought it was very funny that Sophia throughout who's this, who's this princess on this cartoon they celebrate every single holiday that would be on the calendar for the whole year but when they get to Christmas they say Happy Wasalia they like make up uh, uh, something like that, and uh, and I asked my daughter. I said, "Well, what do you think about that?" She goes, "Well, I don't think Jesus was in the kingdom of where wherever it is, or, or thus and such." But so, I mean, there is a sticky wicket with that, and uh, but uh, I, I mean, Jesus is the reason uh, for the season. But again, if you've got if you're dealing with people who have something like scales on their eyes, they're never going to hear it. And even if you say, "Merry Christmas," Jesus is the reason for the season they're just gonna get really mad. Uh, they're gonna get really, uh, really mad. And yet, the other side of that is that uh, that is the message that they long to hear, that God has actually made himself approachable, uh, touchable, uh, vulnerable, uh, in a way that they can identify with. So I, I tend to emphasize that much more, that that message, rather than the, the cultural uh, aspects uh, of it.
1: Andrew, uh, one of uh, our daughters actually wrestles with this a little bit. Um, r- recognizing the blessings that she has had, yet knowing
0: she's known better than people who have not had what she perceives as the blessings she wrestled. Yeah. It. Why me why and why not? Yeah. Right. Um, well, one, is, uh, one thing that I will say is, uh, and I, I brought this up a little while ago about generosity and, and giving. Demographically, the most generous sector of our society are those who would be considered poor. They actually give more percentage-wise than any other uh, uh, class of, of people. Um, and, and I'm always taken back uh, when you're in conversation with people who would be um, lower income in America or in places uh, around the world that don't have nearly as much as we do and how much more grateful they are for what they have than we are, uh, so I think it's really a matter of of perspective. So I don't actually hear a lot of uh, I, I don't hear a lot of um, of griping on mass from people who say, "Well, look at those people; they've got so much more." Because uh, I think actually it's an across-the-board problem. I wrote about it in my Adventurer article. Is that our whole culture is much more prone. Uh, to uh, believe in scarcity rather than abundance. Uh, and even the poorest of the poor in America, if you have two or more taps in your home that produce water, you are in the top 30% of the most wealthy people in the world, just alone by having two taps in your home. So uh, so I think we, we pray for perspective, uh, but we also look at ways, I think, in which, one, we don't take for granted what we have, uh, two, um, that God would uh, also give us, before we can do that, grateful hearts, uh, but that we would also reach out uh, in generosity. I mentioned it in announcements. It's so funny, like this time of year, everybody starts to think, well, now we ought to give canned goods and toys and things like that, but uh, there are hungry people in July, too. Uh, There are hungry people in July, too. Jim. I was
1: wondering what you would say about, do you come into contact with people that are, anti-Christian, it seems to me one of our responses would be to pray for them constantly. And what is the impact of that?
0: Absolutely. Uh, there are people who are praying for Paul, we know, in Acts. And, uh, and, I mean, dumbfounded that he would even become a Christian. So what I would say is even the most antagonistic person who you never thought in a million years would become a Christian are never nearly as bad as St. Paul. In, in worldly terms, uh, so know that God's arm is never too short to save. That he, He's He's able to save um, anybody. He's able to save anybody. Uh, and also, just when it thinks like you, when you think you're not making any headway, you realize that God can actually intervene uh, in their lives. Uh, intervene in their lives. And I think what I try to do is one of the things I do. When people say, "Well, your lives may be the only Bible that somebody reads." Well, Lord, have mercy, because they're not going to believe anything. Um, And so, uh, but if your life, the Christian witness is that what your life exhibits is uh, vulnerability, mercy, love, and grace. That they say, gosh, here's a person who's just like me, and yet... They have this confidence in life, and yet they love people who are really hard to love, and they're loving me, even though I'm a bad friend and a little bit of jerk because of this whole Christianity thing, uh, and that I'm ever putting before them what Christianity is all about. Sometimes they want to get stuck on these side issues like, uh, well, what happens when, you know, uh, well, what about what about this part? What about Anwar Sadat? What about this? What about that? I'm like... Is this waking you up in the middle of the night? I mean, wh- I mean, it may, and if it is, you talk about it. But at the same time, when God gets a hold of your life, he begins to sort that out. Like, that's that's a down-the-road issue. And so, but when the initial connection point is that here is a God who loved you so much that he would come into the world and he would die for you and was raised from the dead for you. Now, what does that mean? That has real implications for your life. So a lot of it is changing the perspective. A lot of people think that... Um, you know, Jesus is like the mean dean and, and the church is the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department and, and that, that it, it, it's sort of a Santa Claus mentality about God uh, rather than um, here is a living uh, personal God who has come for you. And, uh, and that's, that's the message. Uh, and you see that in Jesus' conversations and interactions with people. Uh, we talked about, I think, Zacchaeus. When he called Zacchaeus down out of the tree, he didn't say... Okay, Zacchaeus, now we've got to talk about all the people you've ripped off in your life. He didn't bring it up once. But at the end of interacting with Jesus, he decided to do what? Not just pay everybody back, but pay everybody back and some. And some. Why? Because Jesus told him to? Because Jesus had changed his heart. right? So it requires a heart change, and then you see your life change. Well, that's it. All right, so we'll uh, next next week we're going to continue with Saul... Saul's conversion to Paul, and, uh, and we're going to ask about, is change really possible? Is change really possible as a Christian? Last thing, is anybody going downstairs to get their kids? Anne-Marie, are you going downstairs? Would you do me a huge favor and take my two children upstairs? I'll give you an extra wafer next Sunday. <laughs> God bless you. Is that okay with you, Will? Thank you so much. Go forth in the name of Christ. Thanks, Peter. Yeah.